All right, hey guys, this is Alan and Leon, and welcome to Seize the Moment podcast, episode 11. And today we have a very special guest with us. It's uh, Gordon Marino. And Gordon Marino is a professor of philosophy and director of the Hong Kierkegaard Library at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, Professor Marino took his doctorate from the Committee on Social Thought, University of Chicago. Before coming to St. Olaf in 1995, he taught at Harvard, Yale, and Virginia Military Institute. We wanted to welcome our guest here. Hi, Mr. Marino, how are you today? I'm great, thanks, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. So I heard about you from, uh, from Leon, actually. He was talking about your book, The Existentialist Survival Guide. Right. Um, if, if you don't mind, uh, maybe we could talk about that. Uh, what's, what's the book about? Well, it's a, um, I've been working with, uh, walking with Kierkegaard for most of uh, the past 35 years. And uh, being in my mid-60s now, I thought I would try to uh, distill at least some wisdom that I, you know, see what kind of wisdom, if any, I've gotten from uh, the existentialist. So it's a book that is, in, on the one hand, an introduction to uh, Kierkegaard and some other existentialists, but also a uh, hard memoir, because I try to uh, relate very personal stories to uh, the content of the existentialist, existentialists. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then so in the beginning of the book, you actually talk about your own experiences with depression, anxiety. And so, I mean, what was so interesting is obviously the fact that you're able to be so vulnerable and that you're able to connect it to existentialist philosophy, your experiences. So, I mean, kind of from my perspective or rather kind of from my, I guess, thought, I mean, I was wondering, well, how is it that the existential philosophy and in particular Kierkegaard helped you cope with depression and anxiety at such an early age? Well, he was, he, the existentialist in particular Kierkegaard were, some of the very few philosophically oriented thinkers that uh, really dealt with some of the obstacles we're up against in ourselves, like moods and anxiety and depression. He he, yeah, he wrote the concept of anxiety, and uh, and he was you know basically the father of the whole school of existential psychology that came afterwards. So there was an this is there was a, it seems to me that in order to be a good person, you've got to be able to deal with with these uh, these moods. Some of us much more than others. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Kierkegaard really addressed that. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was checking out uh, Kierkegaard before this. Uh, oh, that's talk. good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, a quick uh, study of Kierkegaard, huh? <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, back in college, I, I learned about him too. I just was, you know, refreshing what on. What'd yeah. you read? Um, so I was checking out uh, that uh, he says anxiety. It's like it's the dizziness of freedom. It's the contemplation of all these different possibilities and kind of being. Uh, with that and kind of coming to terms with the fact that you you have this ultimate freedom to right. choose whatever like for example I, I think there was a, an example he gave of a, of a man standing on a cliff overlooking oh, that's Sartre that's Sartre yeah that's Sartre yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. wow yeah. okay still so close still, still close yeah 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 what's the, <laughs> so the, the yeah. this sort of the existential <laughs> dread right it's cool what are you thoughts on see that? in my class <laughs> 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 you would not pass, no. Uh, but um, yeah. yeah. So, so he does connect. Yeah, he connects. Uh, his anxiety is um, a sign that we're spirits, that we have choice, that we're free. So it's in anxiety that we appropriate our freedom. But he's also very cognizant. So he has a positive take on anxiety. But he's also very cognizant of the fact that it can lead to suicide, terrible things, to uh, doing all kinds of things to avoid it. Yeah. You know, so, so what, uh, what do you think is the distinction between? Um, like the, the kind of crippling anxiety versus the kind that's good for you? Well, or what's the level the, of it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, that that's hard. That that's a hard that's a hard call to make. I mean, for but I think it's very important for for people not to at least for people not to uh, panic about feeling panicked, but to understand that anxiety is part of what of what it is to be a human being and to be able to sit with it. And I think as we've medicalized just about every whim possible, you know, uh, we've developed less and less capacity to tolerate emotions that are really important. And that's one of the reasons I do bring up boxing in books. I'm a you know, boxing trainer for 35 years or whatever, and uh, 30 years. And uh, boxing is a great workshop for being able to deal with anxiety, for, for being able to, um, being struck with anxiety and being able to deal, having to deal with it in a very uh, supervised situation. But we, a lot of us don't get much practice with it anymore. It's, you know, throw pills at it and that's it. So we have less and less tolerance for it. Yeah. And how did Kierkegaard define anxiety? What did it mean to him? Well, he defines it a lot of different ways. The concept of anxiety is probably his most difficult book. But uh, again, it is this awareness of, uh, it's a sense of being free, mm -hmm. having to choose. And, and at, some, at some level, having to make choices without any objective standards for making them. That's certainly what Sartre gets out of, this idea this, that we, we're moral human beings, uh, we have this freedom, and yet there's no real objective standard for deciding what to do. Yeah. Yeah. So this between anxiety and freedom that we get in there. Yeah, and I think that that's what Sartre was talking about in his metaphor of the cliff, yeah. where you essentially just, at any point, can kind of just choose to jump off. Yeah. There's really nothing yeah, stopping you from feeling. doing so. I, I, I've, I've, I've been on cliffs and had that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped off of you too, unfortunately. Yeah. What stopped you from jumping? <laughs> well, I don't know, but but that's what he talked about. But he, well, one of the things that's beautiful about Kierkegaard's account is he does he does um, he he does um relate to these these um, um, physiologic to the to the body. It is a kind of dizziness. Anxiety is a kind of dizziness, you know. And he feels like says, says some, uh, but he's also aware of the possibility of medic medicalizing. Yeah. He says some days we'll throw pills and powders at it, yeah. which kind of anticipates the age of big pharma, where you know, yeah. you have a, where there's a pill, there's a way. Yeah. And you know. what, what's so interesting about existential thought is that essentially they take these concepts of, let's say, well, in this case, you know, kind of obviously existential dread in terms of freedom, but then also the existential dread in connection to the fear of death. And they sort yeah. of, I don't want to say spin them, but they turn them into something that's really useful and they turn them into something that can be used to live a fulfilling life. And so kind of for just for a little bit kind of background information for my listeners. So existentialism views death as not necessarily in itself a positive, but something that, can, that's something that can be right, something that can sort of be turned into like Alan once said, you know, moment, what was it? Memento Mori? Oh, Memento yeah. Mori? Yeah, yeah. Mindful of death. Right, right. Using it in the sense of making yourself or using it in the sense of making your life more fulfilling. So the existential... Oh, know, hold on a sec. Hold on sure. a sec. For someone like Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. he doesn't relate it to uh, the bucket list and smell the flowers and more fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It's wake up, uh, remind yourself you need to be a good person. For him, a faithful person. Believe, mm -hmm. re recollect God. Yeah. You know, so... The way Kierkegaard's kind of translated is, well, if you're aware of death, you'll be more, be more aware of time and you'll make sure to paint your masterpiece or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. For Kierkegaard, it's not an aesthetic thing like that. It's, it's, hey, man, wake up. Don't be careless with the relationships. Be a good person, you know. I love a line by Dylan. You know, Dylan's line is, uh, time is an ocean, but it ends at the shore. You may not see me tomorrow, you know. And, uh, oh, sister, the song, oh, sister. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that's that's pretty much Kierkegaard's idea. That, uh, uh, but again, it's related to kind of an ethical, spiritual kind of thing, not like self fulfillment, which is a kind of god today. Mm -hmm. And so, how did he view that? Then, what was spiritual fulfillment to him? What did that encompass? Oh, for him, it meant 
not collecting, uh, being, being, trusting in God. Mm-hmm. Trusting in God. Saying your prayers, trusting in God. Yeah. Even yeah. when you uh, seem crazy. You know? Didn't uh, Kierkegaard say that uh, anxiety was like an indispensable ingredient to a life lived with full of potential? Like, uh, I, I, be- I mean, I know it's not like he was yeah. talking about self-fulfillment per se, yeah. but he was saying that it was definitely necessary to oh, yeah. live the best version That's of right. life. Definitely, yeah, that it's a blessing. Even though it feels like a curse, it's a blessing. Yeah. Because it's a mark that we're spirits. It's a mark that we're selves, we're spirits, that we're not just robots or beasts or something. You know? Yeah, definitely. And so how do you conceptualize that in terms of your own book? Do you also go toward or gear toward that spiritual path? Or you do you take a more secular one in terms of the awareness of death? I say my prayers, man. I try to trust in God. Mm-hmm. I do. But uh, I'm, not, I'm, not a, you know, uh, I'm not a regular church goer and stuff like that. But I do, I do, I do try to trust in God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you, in terms of kind of the way you conceptualize, um, in terms of the way you conceptualize what? Uh, excuse me, just just one point here, though. Sure. Right? In the book, I do try to make at various points. I try to say, okay, look, uh, if God is dead for you, if you, or if you've pushed God away, mm-hmm. I try to make it, a lot of people say I lost my faith or I never had it. You push it away. It's a, it's, a, it's faith isn't something you kind of have like a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it is a feeling that well, it comes and goes, but uh, it's what you, for me. It's what I want to do when I don't when it seems ridiculous to me, do I want do I, do I pray to God for faith, or do I just say this is nuts, man? This is just Santa Claus stuff, you know? So, uh, but in the book, I do try to say, well, look, if it's a, if if you if you've made God a dead issue, then think about it in terms of being a good human being, good loving human being, you know? So I, I think we could think of, uh, anxi- I think we could think of the same things that way sometimes. And is that that is that what it would encompass a meaningful life to you, being a good person? Yeah, but you know, but it's it's yeah. I just don't know how to how to. I'm just so nervous about unpacking in terms of a meaningful life. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, I think all kinds of people that led purposeful lives and made tremendous sacrifice. I'm sure it didn't feel too meaningful mm-hmm. when they were in jail for 27 years or whatever. You know, and mm-hmm. so it's not meaning. It's it's. I don't think meaning should be. Uh, a meaningful life should be should be our goal. It's rather be a, be a good, loving human human being. Yeah. You know, and uh, I I try to stress that a lot with my students uh, because they're so they're so wrapped up in um, understandably in what to do next in life. You know, the vocational issue. And I say, man, you're at a certain age now where I want you to think about what kind of human being you want to be and why. Mm-hmm. You know, and check back with me in ten years when I'm still walking the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's so little time spent on that. And uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I. I I think being committed to uh, being a good, loving human being does does probably make life more meaningful. But I, I wouldn't use that as the target. You know, yeah. it's kind of like happiness or something like that. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, so it's like um, so it's not about uh, meaning per se. It's about like having um, a good impact or taking good actions in the in the world. Yeah, yeah. being a good neighbor, being a loving person. Walk. See, I think it's Tech Han who said. Uh, Talks about life is uh, walking together, holding hands, walking home, holding hands. Yeah, being being good to people, being good to other people. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah, and and that's hard to do when you feel like shit. Excuse my language. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really, and a lot of us deal with that. You know, and yeah. it's really easy when things are going well and uh, all the door, all the lights are green. You know, yeah. and you go through periods, and you're gonna go through them in life. Yeah. You know, you're gonna there's gonna be like. You know, as I mentioned, you know, in the book, my wife's been sick a lot of times, and uh, 
you know, when you're a young kid, you get married, you're on sickness and health, you go, oh, no, man, no problem, sickness, no, no big deal. Well, things, there's some real challenges in life coming down the road. And I mean, what's so interesting is that Viktor Frankl and his man's search yeah. for meaning, right? So he essentially talks about the fact that it, the meaningful life and the one that's sort of full of like, purpose. Yeah, exactly. The one that's full of purpose and the one that's sort of full of um, the one that makes you feel like, let's say it's worth living is the one where you overcome the suffering and rise above it and still aim to be a good person, despite the fact that your yeah. struggle is Which so severe. And he gets well, that from, I understand yeah. that from Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche says, if you have the, uh, you have the why, you have the how. Yes. You know? That's a, that's a that's a very very powerful book you know yeah and what would you say it's, it, I mean do you think that in some way that um, Viktor Frankl learned from Nietzsche I mean not from Nietzsche I'm sorry from Kierkegaard what do you think he took away no, from I don't think he read Kierkegaard but he did read Nietzsche Nietzsche right yeah, he was a really well known uh, psychiatrist in Austria before he went to carted off to all the to the camps you know uh, yeah so he was very well read yeah, and interestingly enough, with him, a lot of his work wouldn't have been anywhere near where it was in terms of popularity and impact if he had not gone through those experiences. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think his I think his wife was wanting to see his wife again. I wasn't was yeah. loved. And yeah. she was. I think, if I recall correctly, she she died in the prison camps. Yeah, she actually did, and he yeah. didn't know about it at the time. And he said right. that the only thing that kept him going right was actually thinking about right. them and dreaming about him and his oh. children. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, how would you say uh, boxing helped with your anxiety? Like, what what exactly was it? Was it just doing a bunch like drills? Was it in the exercise? Was it being focused? Oh man, I grew up with fist flying all the time, so I took up boxing. Uh, well, I was a division one. I was playing division one football and then transferred to Columbia, and uh, I was boxing uh, various times during my high school years, and uh, I, I figured. Uh, had a lot, a lot of anger in me, a lot of anger, a lot of fear, you know, so it was a way of, uh, makes you feel less vulnerable in the world. And uh, so it was very important to me. It still is, unfortunately. It's like, a, you know, I keep, I got kids I'm training this afternoon and, you know, cover the fights for, for years and uh, know a lot of world champions and uh, it's been important. But yeah, but I think, but it, it, it is this place where um, you get, uh, you, you learn to control your emotions and you deal with emotions that we don't can practice with. Like again, anger and anxiety. And uh, George Foreman, I know, pointed out something to me that was um, really, really important. And I bring up in the book. I think you know. Um, also, there's there's so many kids that never hear a nice word. I mean, they're living in difficult circumstances at home. Things are tumultuous. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like that. And you go into school and you're pissed off, and all the teachers hate you. You know, you get nothing but bad. You know, you know nothing but yelled at and stuff. And and. Uh, and all of a sudden you get to a boxing gym and someone says, man, you're good at something, you know? And uh, it really taught me how much, uh, how much so affirmation, how important it is. And some people never get any of it. Like a lot of the, all the guys I have are mostly uh, Mexican immigrants. Nobody ever says to them, you know, man, you're really good. You're, you're a nice job, you know, or, you know what I mean? There's no affirmation. And so uh, a lot of, of us uh, privileged people have had people, you know, pat us in the back all the time. And uh, a lot of the people come to boxing gym, that's the first time they ever get it. And when they get that love, that sunshine, that love, man, they blossom. Yeah, you know, yeah. so and that's not for everybody, but it's it, it's it's true for a certain group, group of people, and uh, it's really important. Was was that what life was like for you as a young boxer? Uh, no, no, I got I got information from my parents. My parents, there was a lot of craziness and violence, but uh, there was there was there was also a lot of love. And uh, the boxing gyms I was in in New York were, uh, were pretty pretty rough places. I was throwing them with top contenders right away in a spar. Yeah. 
It was scary, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's because it made made football look like. Uh, I remember the first time I got hit by a, a heavyweight contender spar, and I stepped back and said, "Whoa!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> it was kind of beautiful. It was like I was like, hey, "That's pretty cool." Yeah, you know, I never true. never felt anything like that before, and uh, so. Uh, um, and, and I had some bad, bad coaches who threw me in there pretty pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. So it's really affected me as a coach in terms of being mm-hmm. careful with kids. You know what I wonder, and this is just something that kind of came up at the top of my head. So because you named your book The Existentialist Survival Guide. And I mean, technically speaking, boxing is itself is a sport of essentially survival. I mean, mm-hmm. you're trying not to sort of yeah. get yourself killed. And I wonder, yeah. do you feel like in some way that there's a this sort of um, intimate connection between boxing and your book and why you chose that title? I, I I didn't choose. They don't. You want to hear the titles I had? Sure. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Right? <laughs> Stuff like uh, there are no happy endings. Yeah. You know, don't tell Harper. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't come up. I'm really bad at titles. But oh, I, yeah, I, yeah. Let's choose the title. Like an editor like <laughs> choice thing, right? But I, I was happy with the title. No, yeah. I think it was good because it wasn't like the guide to happiness or you know a guide to a pro- it's survival. Yeah. You know, so I was happy with that title. You know. Mm-hmm. What but that wasn't mine. What, what, what did it mean to you? <laughs> that or there are no happy endings. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did the title itself mean to you in the context of your book and your work? Did you sort of view it as more of a survival guide? Yeah, no, that, that, that's why I said I was happy with the title. Yeah. I, I didn't come up with it, and I moaned about it in the beginning, but yeah, yeah. I, I was a little, um, no, I better not get into criticizing the, the title. <laughs> well, the thing was, I, um, uh, a guide to living authentically in an authentic age. The thing is, I don't know, most of the kids I teach, authenticity is not a big concept with them these days. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so now with the election coming on. Also. But it's not one that was, in the 70s, it was huge. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's not that huge for them? Because uh, technically... I'm not sure. Yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, yeah, just, uh, I mean, to live authentically is to, mm, I mean, uh, not to put it the wrong way, but I mean, uh, you could say that's, living true to yourself you're you're fully expressing yourself the way you wish to uh, i don't yeah, know like how, it's, yeah. charles, charles manson's authentic was authentic you know mm-hmm. so you could be it, there's more to it than just uh being yourself mm-hmm. fair uh, enough yeah well, in uh, many cases it's a bad self you know? uh, so but, but i guess with the um you know with all the issues around social media the super hyper consciousness about the impact of that it would it would seem to have some grip there. I think the issue of authenticity question. The students question that a lot. Yeah. Young people, you guys are probably on your phone all damn day, right? <laughs> Close <laughs> enough to it. Head down like this, right? Don't yeah, you tell me truth. Tell me truth. How long can you go without your iPhone? <laughs> oh God, I what? probably can. I can only probably maybe do thirty minutes. Thirty minutes to thirty hour. minutes. Yeah, I'm not kidding. When I'm in session, I don't look at my phone. But then, like between when I get breaks, I'm always on it. Let's do a test. See if you can go. <laughs> Two days without using your iPhone. You'll come, up with an, you'll come up with an excuse right away why I got it on there. So then how would you define authenticity and what would you describe as, or how would you describe its importance? Look, um... Yeah, so what is being, okay, being, okay, so being honest with yourself, for mm-hmm. example, I think is a very big aspect of it. Uh, um, for example, if you have insecurities, being open about them and uh, mm-hmm. being able to critique yourself. Yeah. So, um... I, I think those are aspects. Being at home in your skin, in some way, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's. The, the, I always think of it that way. Yeah, a lot cool. of a lot. Of, that's one thing I do find about a lot of boxers. Even this is weird, but even guys that have uh, suffered uh, brain damage in the ring, you know, you go to the, the boxing hall of fame, 
And those guys are at home with themselves in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, there's no pretensions or something like that. Uh, so kind of being in your home, home in your own skin, not not like, you know, yeah. certain people in the... Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, because it's so interesting. It seems like at least... I mean, I don't obviously know what kind of... No particularly first-hand knowledge of what other generations were like. But I think yeah. that the biggest struggle that people have, especially our age and below us, are struggles with intimacy and being vulnerable with other yeah. people. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned before how all of us are on our iPhones. And in a way, that's sort of a fake version of vulnerability, where we kind of connect with other people, but yeah. not really. Right. And it's like we're not really able to be ourselves because everything is sort of heavily curated. And the thing is, we get reinforcement, right, for things that may not necessarily even be qualities that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And even the whole dating procedure, the way of meeting people. today. Oh, my God. Yes. We always complain about about dating. Yes. You complain about it. All the time. We just had an episode last week on the difficulty of finding finding love. Yeah. Yeah. Coincidentally, last week. Uh Yeah. Where you can just kind of slide or whatever it is we guys Yeah, do. yeah, yeah. So you pretty much you swipe and you get you obviously get the best version of the other person. And then when you kind of meet <laughs> Yeah. And then when you kind of meet them, you know, it's sort of a lot of times lackluster because a lot of people don't really have I, I don't okay, maybe this is too high too harsh of a criticism, but at least a good portion of people don't have the ability to really converse. So when you kind of yeah. meet them on dates, there's really not that much to talk about. And it's like it, partially it's because there's a fear of vulnerability. But then the other part is I find that people don't really have much much in terms of interest anymore like it, that's the toughest part of dating like have say, say more about that what do you mean well i mean like in terms of interest i mean most people's interests are literally like reality television right whatever's going on in their yeah. little world right it's very it's every, even very rare that you can find somebody to talk to about politics with i know that's scary you're, you're absolutely right i agree yeah, yeah most people just I, i'm not you talk because i write a lot of a lot of political stuff these days and uh mm-hmm. um yeah yeah, I, I, I uh, have overestimated how much people are following politics. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 Hey, but you guys do interviews. You should be able to ask questions, listen. It should be, it should be, it should be cake for you. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, man. I hear you. But it's also a two-way street. And it's also, but also, but in order to get to know one another, you got, <laughs> here's the dating advice from mm-hmm. Mr. Authenticity. <laughs> you got to... You got to deal with one of the things that I talk about in the book, even is um, uh, the ability to deal with awkwardness. There's a lot of awkward situations in life. You just take a deep breath and you you try to kind you know go, go through them, and uh, your doors will open up a lot of times. Dostoevsky is fantastic on the topic of awkwardness, yeah. and it is a huge aspect in life of being able to sit through it and you know be together. And it takes a few, it takes a little time. Yeah. How do you think Kierkegaard would have dealt with that? With they, we, well, <laughs> the awkwardness of dating. We made every we scared the hell out of everybody. <laughs> they always were afraid he was going to end up in his, in his next book yeah. because he used to go around talking to people all the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And apparently he made he, everyone feel everyone said he and Dostoevsky mm-hmm. made everyone feel nervous as hell. Really? Yeah, both of them. Well, yeah, never Yeah, yeah. Dostoevsky was amazing like that. Was it their intellect, or were they just super socially? Well, there was intellect. There was a, well, for Kierkegaard, it was this uh, this amazing imagination, right? And this, you know. Uh, but for for Dostoevsky, who had been in Siberia five years, gone through a near execution, uh, he was he was very much into uh, if you um, humiliation was a big theme with him. So it was, he was insulted very easily. So this famous author Turgenev said. He loaned Dostoevsky money, money at one point, mm-hmm. and Dostoevsky said, he said if he didn't ask, back, ask it back from him, right, he'd be insulted. Mm-hmm. 
And if you did ask it, well, you'd be insulted. Oh, God. <laughs> it took umbrage at everything, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so, so weird like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, um, I was curious, do you talk about ego at all in, in your book? Who? In, uh, ego, like in terms of um, <laughs> being identified with certain kinds of thoughts or, or beliefs and kind of being rigid in uh, in those thoughts or beliefs. Uh, in terms of like, uh, I don't know, I guess if... Um, Let's relate it to uh, dating, let's say. I don't know. Uh, Give me. Try again. Try again. Clarify that question, please. Like, do you you talk about, um, like, so, for example, in some books that I've read before, like, at least about the topic of ego, they define it as, like, um, and this might be a working definition, as being identified with a belief, like, believing that... um, that you are this uh, label or you're this uh, or like in the momentum of thoughts, you kind of believe in in these thoughts, like say you're having an anxious thought and it might uh, prevent you from taking action or something like that. Do, do you talk about how to kind of like deal with uh, either those thoughts or as that anxiety is coming, like how to navigate that? Yeah, I do talk a lot about that uh, with anxiety. It's really important not to get anxious about feeling anxious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of thing. So this kind of meta relationship we have to our feelings. But in, in terms of ego, it's, um, uh, I, I, I did talk quite a bit about that, uh, you know, how that's a big part of life. And how impediment. But I'll give you a good example. of One thing that just came up for me recently is, so I just wrote an article on um, on uh, separation of children and parents, right? With my wife who's a neuroscientist. Wrote it. Mm-hmm. And when I first, I said, man, we got to do something about the situation of the border where we're separating kids from their parents. I mean, something beyond giving donations, right? Oh, yeah. right? I mean, I just find it absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. It, I mean, it's horrible. I mean, it's incredible, you know? And so we've got to do something, you know? We're, 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 this, is our, this is our country. We have, so, you know, I just I just, I just wrote, wrote a piece uh, and sent it out uh, with her. But so the initial response, initial reaction, my initial response was, man, I got to do some help, something, right? But within a couple of hours of, of writing, the, I, you know, do the article, and then all of a sudden, like, oh my God, someone says going to beat me out with this topic, mm-hmm. you know? So the way our ego gets enmeshed in everything, it's part of what it is to be human, you know? And, I, and, and so for me, I kind of like, okay, man, I reckon, you know, like, oh my God, so and so is coming out with the same stuff. I got to hurry up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, I mean, the original impulse was a, a beautiful one, you know? And then it gets mixed with this, you know, this need for this need for approval, this need for approval, which. Uh, so I think many people like me who grew up with flying fists and some hard times, and we need a lot of uh, armor to uh, to to uh, protect our, ourselves, you know, to feel good about ourselves. And uh, that's one of the takes I, I have on, on ego and uh, how it gets mixed in with so much. And, and it's, we shouldn't hate ourselves for it. It's just part of what it is to be human, but it's a good idea to keep a third eye on it, you know. Mm. So no, that, that's what I mean, to be, to be aware of it. Say, oh, man, it's, what the fuck? You know, what? What's, come on. This is supposed to be about kids at the border, and now you're worried about you know, whether the times is going to take. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're right. Yeah, no, that that's like the main concern there. Like the the little like you like you just basically said like the little petty ego concerns related to like what you're actually writing about the purpose of what yeah. you're trying to say. It's it's pales in comparison. So yeah. like little things like that, you should be aware of, but not let it. Um, how should I say? Like you shouldn't succumb to those yeah. little petty. We, yeah, it's just yeah, we're, we're, we're a bag of human beings. We're a bag of mixed motives all the time, you know. Yeah. I, I can't I can't think of too many times in life where I've had absolutely pure motives, yeah. you know. 
Uh, I think uh, so. We, we need to accept that. So there's a idea, also an idea of a of um, reflect on yourself and ex- accepting yourself, not like you know torturing yourself about. Yeah. Oh man, I'm you know I wanted to get this published and blah blah blah. That's, I think it's a good idea to take a good laugh. Yeah. That's one of the things that the to laugh at the bill. When you say when you say that authentic people have the ability to laugh at themselves mm-hmm. on certain presidents. <laughs> yeah. Like Obama. Obama was really great about that. Okay? He made you know this ability to laugh at yourself. I think is is so is really a, yeah. a sign. Let's say that's a, a sign of authenticity. Yeah, they don't take themselves so seriously and they accept their flaws. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And, and yeah. I actually really like the thread that you started with the ego, and so because obviously mental health is so important to the both of us. I also wanted to ask you, Gordon. So in terms of kind of the ego, mental health is so important. So we know kind of in terms. Yeah, of that's like, pretty obvious. So we know in terms of the connection between kind of like the ego and depression, right, that, you know, people who tend to be depressed kind of are more in themselves or in their own brains in terms of sort of focusing on the things that they don't have, the qualities that they don't have, all of the expectations that they have for themselves, all of the expectations that they believe they should have attained already. And so I was wondering, Gordon, for you, because you have struggled with depression in some way did existential. I am struggling with it all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, did existential philosophy or does it in any sort of way help you calm those thoughts or help you sort of see the world in a greater perspective and a healthier one? Yeah, it helps, it helps me uh, ride them through. I, I realize that they're, they're, they're moods that pass through like the weather. And that's one of the troubles with young, you youngsters. Hmm. So you lose you lose temporal perspective with a, a depression a lot of time and you, you feel like it's going to be there like that all the time. Yeah. You know, and that's when people... I think dangerous things happen, you know. Um, but it's also really important to just, uh, and this is from Freud. I've been very deeply influenced by Freud. Uh, and uh, he was able to see the, the element of rage and depression, mm-hmm. raging against the self, you know. And uh, so it's it, it's hard when you, most people feel depressed or feel so passive. They don't they don't realize that element of anger, that self-directed anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this, you know, fury behind it all. This self-torture, this kind of like, you know, and you should read Freud's Morning and Melancholia. Really, yeah, yeah. Really that, 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 that's a classic. Yeah. That's an amazing book. Mm-hmm. Amazing essay. Yeah. And so in terms of kind of like, um, well, in terms of the existentialists themselves, how do you feel like, or I mean, obviously, you know, how, how is it that they dealt with depression? Well, I mean, let me see. Uh, I would say Kierkegaard was really depressive, and he dealt with it by, by writing. Right. And kept them kept them afloat mm-hmm. much more so than the other ones. I, I'm not so sure. I don't think Sartre. He was always on amphetamines and drinking. Simone de Beauvoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Camus must have gone through some because uh, he uh, he had this terrible situation with his wife. He was a womanizer. And she tried to commit suicide. And if you read the book The Fall. It's kind of autobiographical. Right, but it's really Kierkegaard addressed it most most directly. I think in terms of the existentialists. Mm-hmm. How do you think the writing helped him? What was it about it? Oh well, no. If you when, when um, it it gets you uh, when, when you're writing like that, you're, you're it, it organizes your experience as opposed to being consumed by yeah. def, you know, terrible thoughts. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm writing an essay or something, I yeah. it's, it, it it organizes your mind. Yeah. Okay. You it's know, the, and uh, and you're also in some cases the kind of stuff I write. You're you're getting it, you're throwing some punches, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, it's like they're taking responsibility through action. They're organizing the chaos that's going on inside of them, putting it down yeah. into words. 
Yeah. And yeah. by writing, you're essentially, I mean, I don't know how many of them thought like this, but they were definitely doing a service by writing and letting other people know how they thought about these topics, right? right. Yeah. And, yeah, I, yeah, they very from personal. I mean, certainly Dostoevsky was dealt with depression, yeah. epilepsy, everything, right? Yeah. He was writing to make a living and, and you know, uh, again, a mixture of motives, but I, yeah. I don't think they saw themselves as uh, passing on the, how to, here's how to live. They weren't self-help people. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah. And interestingly, just to kind of add on to Alan's point, which I really like. So in terms of writing, what we also see from different studies is that when it comes to depression, the thing that's sort of, I don't know if it's most harmful, but is definitely a major factor in depression is the social isolation. So for yeah. a lot of people who struggle with depression, they essentially search for intimacy. And yeah. if you, let's say, struggle with self-esteem, it's very hard for you to kind of come out the house and, you know, talk to your neighbor. Yeah. So what a lot of people do is they sort of search for intimacy through writing. So by writing down their thoughts and obviously kind of their feelings and bringing it forth to the world, and having other people read it and maybe give them feedback it's a way for them to feel connected to the whole and also feel important right like they matter in their community because these people are actually taking the time to read them that 100 percent. that's right yeah, yeah. but the, you're right affiliation is so important and it's especially difficult with men yes I mean, oh don't i know it you know yeah. it's just uh, i see these w groups of women uh in northfield that go around they're just walking together you know they have a walking club or something mm-hmm and just don't do that kind of stuff, you know. They just and, uh, they get very isolated. Yeah. But also, here we got to talk about pharmaceuticals here. It's, uh, I mean, uh, depending on what figures you look at, one in six Americans on yeah. psychotropic drugs, and uh, and they uh, <laughs> they don't always work. In fact, uh, a lot of times uh, uh, they, they have the opposite effects, you know. So it's kind of a. <laughs> yeah, my wife's a neuropharmacologist, and a lot of times it's real crapshoot with, with drugs. You know, it's real. I mean, so when say the SSRIs came out that they thought they were a cure-all and uh, yeah. they worked for maybe, you know, one or two out of 10 people yeah. really well, yeah. you know, and, and, and there's a lot, a lot of side effects. And so yeah. people just, and, 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 and so to some extent, because what you're talking about before you guys with vulnerability, well, if I don't have to be vulnerable if I say, well, I just need my drugs titrated. I just got to get the right drug, yeah. you know, and that's a way of avoiding vulnerability and, and reflecting on your experience. Yeah. So I think there's issues there with drugs. And so the toughest challenge that I have as a therapist is essentially with my heterosexual male patients. So a lot of times the biggest struggle is literally that they don't feel like they can open up to other people. And of course, huh. much of it isn't their fault, right? Because that was the kind of culture that they were brought up in. And sometimes even you see that when they feel like they, when they even try to open up to people, let's say, who are not other straight guys, even with women, some women are also critical of them too, where they say, oh, you just have to man up. And I mean, that's always been a problem in our culture where it's so hard because obviously they can't be vulnerable and without being vulnerable, Vulnerable, they can actually get the help and then also experience the intimacy that they need to experience some semblance of joy in life. Yeah, is this Alan or Leon? Oh, that Alan? was Leon, actually. That was me. That was Leon. Leon. Yeah. yeah, Leon, have you read uh, uh, Irving Yalom's Love's Executioner? I have read, I think, about seven to ten of Yalom's books. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> that, but that one's, a, that one's a gem, man. Where yes. He really talks about, like, uh, he has this one patient who um, was just yak, 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 wasn't, can't get anywhere with her. And, uh, no, he says, you, you know, you just, uh, you know, he says, uh, on, a, on a scale of one to ten, I want you to tell me how intimate you thought. Uh -huh. You know, it's just a lot of just bull, you know, yeah. the whole situation. And he calls her on and it's really, yeah, uh, she thinks she's being really vulnerable. She's not, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah you're absolutely right. But that's a that's a really good good text on that. And, um, yeah, I, I, but, you know, I also think, because um, SM right right now is about the importance of being struck about being listening and being listened to like how there's so many people in the world who just nobody ever listens to like uh like i had a kid come in uh, 
student um, from, uh, and uh, just I've uh, known for years, he used to coach boxing as a kid in town, and uh, he's like flunking out, and he could barely, uh, what's going on? He, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't tell me, and I realized he never had anybody to listen to him, yeah. and so he can't listen to himself. Mm -hmm. he, doesn't, he doesn't know how to listen to himself. Yeah. And there's so many people in life who, who haven't had someone they could pour their heart out to. You know, and when you haven't had that, don't you think it's hard to get in touch with what you feel, yeah. or to, 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 you know, to, you know, and it's such a blessing to. Have, I mean, that's one thing. For example, I had plenty of people that I could hold my heart to over the years, and including people in my family, and and that's huge. And a lot of people don't have that. When they don't have it, they don't know where, even how to get started in, ex, in getting expressing what's going on with them. You know. And it's like, it's so many people don't really know or understand, I guess, how important intimacy is. The fact that we need to, as human beings, that our existence alone isn't enough. That we need somebody to validate our existence. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, how do you get, yeah. That's one of the things I'm worried about with the border stuff. The stuff on the border, you know, your ability for attachment. You know, yeah. your ability to be together with someone, you know. Yeah, right, and especially and the caregivers who are, and I use this term very loosely at the border, are essentially not caregivers, and they oh, invalidate, God. right, and they're invalidating these children's experiences. That's no. what makes it. That's what even sort of compounds the atrocity of it. Oh, it's unbelievable! It's just terrible. And we did that. What do you think of uh, slaves? Yeah, the families, uh, Native Americans sent to the boarding schools. Yeah, and how much? How much? You know, how this is just horrendous. It's just horrible. It's just so cruel. Yeah, you know, and also on the parents. That's one of the things I read about in this article is that the parents. Uh, we lost a. And this, we were in a mall once, and my, my, my three-year-old kind of walked off for about 10 minutes. I thought I was going to die, man. Yeah. You know? And so you think of the damage done to the parents. Uh, and it's very hard, when they're, as you as a psychotherapist, you know, when they're reunited. It's not, yeah. it's not easy if they are reunited, you know, because right. the kids are falling into a state of detachment. And, right. And this is, I mean, coming from an administration that doesn't believe in PTSD or any form of trauma. So, yeah. It is. Don't get me started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say New Jersey. <laughs> That's a pretty heavy topic. Yeah. But like, uh, for example, um, I mean, would you say like for someone trying to deal with their anxiety, maybe like exposure to the thing that they're afraid of uh, would kind of get them out of it? Not like too much exposure, I guess, because I'm sure there's a point when it gets too overwhelming. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but that's like, like phobias, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah, definitely, that's exposure, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's usually yeah. the main form of trauma. I mean, Leon's more qualified to talk about it, but like say somebody had a, I don't know, like uh, agoraphobia, like they're afraid yeah. to go outside, to be intimate with people, meet people. Yeah. I, how would you, how would you treat that, for example? Kind of, kind of method? So it's, well, the cognitive part would essentially kind of help them rationalize their thoughts, but then afterwards, obviously, they would need to take the steps to go out there. But mm -hmm. would you would you you would do it little by little, right? Yeah, like mm -hmm. first systematic. Maybe, yeah, it's yeah. called yeah. Yeah, so systematic systematic desensitization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well, it's it's, get them to recognize the importance of intimacy somehow, you know, and that would yeah, that's what comes. Okay, so uh, at least with psychoanalytic therapy, you're in, you're you're there three four maybe three times a week or a couple times a week or whatever. Yeah. So you develop this relationship with the therapist. You develop a, re a relationship. So I think it's relationships that heal. Yes. So it's case, yes. hopefully, and then that's something we lost. I mean, we don't think right. that, you know, it's too. Insurance companies don't want to reimburse for that. Right. So uh, I think a really important step would be getting people to recognize, man, I feel lonely, or I, I need, I need yeah. other. People. 
Yeah. And, and I, it's so cool that you said that because like I, when I end treatment or come toward the end of treatment with clients, the main question I always ask is usually, you know, essentially like, what did you find to be helpful? What wasn't so huh? helpful? And so I, my expectations are always the same and they never are met. So I always expect that it's some CBT skill that I taught them, whether in terms of cognitive restructuring, sort of managing their emotions in terms of kind of any sort of exercise, whether it's, you know, kind of deep breathing or let's say even some like when we do exposure therapy, mm -hmm. I always expect it to be something within the sort of structured manual and it's always the same thing they would always mention some moment that i did or some or some moment that we had something that i said it's some connection yeah yes. yeah what yalom would call the throw-ins like something maybe nice <laughs> or kind that i said or did you know maybe for them and for me it's like it's not that big of a deal and i'm like this isn't even really a part of treatment but to them that was more meaningful it should, no, that is man the relationship is yeah, the truth it's the relationship it is, that's the treatment and the, so i mean i thought i think on the one hand you got the, <clears throat> the this this reliance on pharmaceuticals and on the other hand Therapies often boils down with cognitive behavioral therapy, a bunch of techniques. That's true, yeah. So techniques and pills, you know. And what it is, it's that relationship with a person, opening up to a person, I think, is so so huge. And, uh, yeah. and being yeah. there, that's one of the things I find about, you know, because I coach both, both football and boxing with boxers every day, you know, is just being there on a consistent basis, what that means in life. You know, not you don't have to have, like, some, oh, here's the insight, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really good that kind of stuff for about 10 Ten sessions and then that's it. They lose interest. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. You know. Yeah. Whereas, right. as opposed to just being there, just being there all the time, man. Just being somebody you can count on. Yeah. Is and, there? You and, know. And, and really believing in them, because that's the other thing that I find to be helpful. That when you truly believe in the person yeah. and they can sense it, that's more meaningful than any technique that I've ever taught them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I may, uh, let me suggest. I don't mean to be. If you forget the self promotion, it's not. Well, it's actually other promotion, but. Oh, sure. It's called the, the Long Conversation mm. in the New York Times about uh, my 45, 50-year re relationship with a therapist. Mm. Okay. Oh, wow. What is it called, The Long Conversation? It's called The Long Conversation. Okay. And, uh, what was really beautiful about that is that she treated me. I was, at a, she, I was 19. Mm -hmm. She was 26. At I was at Columbia then. Mm -hmm. And um, she, she got her PhD and graduated and kept treating me for free because I didn't have any money. And uh, mm -hmm. I wanted so badly to say thank you. Uh, to her in some public way, you know, because she said, I mean, I, I wouldn't have survived better. Yeah, and um, so the New York Times let me let me name her in the, in the, in the text. And that was one of the most gratifying moments yeah. I've ever had writing that, you know, because usually they don't, they don't want you to name the person. Yeah. And uh, it meant so much to me. It was such a beautiful way to embrace her. And she told me something, and she was just this ability to just constantly be there, yeah. you know, to be there. And not like, you know, not like, not like there wasn't boundaries. You know, it's just I'm there for you. You know, and uh, and that's that's I think we need to be there for each other in life. And I try to carry that over in the classroom, coaching. And again, that doesn't mean always being. I thought a lot of guys get you know, yeah. certain people I've worked with, boxing wise or students, adios. <laughs> you know, I think that's a lovely thing to do sometimes. And what was the most important thing that you learned from her? Uh, uh, well, and a lot, a lot of there was a lot, of, a lot of insights. She was yeah. also a psychoanalyst, but uh, again, this. How the importance of relationships, how they heal. Yeah. Being there, being there, and I can being there with somebody you can count on, always there, not having to like, oh man, here's this big insight, you know. Mm -hmm. That's it, you know. It was, it was a slow consistency. Process. Yeah. And, yeah, one, and, one, and one could even argue that being there is itself this great insight, the insight that you're worthy insight. of having someone be there for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, which a lot of people never had. Yeah. Yeah. Never and I'm sure you see that a lot with your students, which is why you're so significant to them. Yeah, and I have night Yeah, I, I feel it's really important. 
I try. I try to pass that on. I do my best. Try to pass that on. I have night office hours, everything, and uh, mm -hmm. try to be there. You know, try try to be there. Yeah. So you're like you're the Mickey. They're like you're Rocky, and you're their Mickey. <laughs> 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 Get off, you Listen, son of a bitch! Don't get me started. Except for a person. <laughs> <laughs> so I am curious what is your favorite boxing movie by the way oh come on Raging yeah. Bull far. <laughs> which one Raging Bull oh Raging wow Bull. you want yeah, a little story true. about that no, well, yeah, sure. sure yeah please alright alright don't tell anybody again. <laughs> okay so when um, I was at, uh, I was boxing back then and uh, so Jake LaMotta goes out to um, I shouldn't tell you this is I'm just going to be in trouble so Jake LaMotta goes out to Hollywood to um to make this movie, right? Yeah. And uh, to to um, coach De Niro and everything. So um, he was working at the, uh, it was called the 49er Club, which is a topless bar, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I, I took his job for a while, and it was a mafia bar. Mm -hmm. wow. And when I was a kid, I always wanted to be in the mafia, mm -hmm. right? Great aspiration. So, so, I mean, it was like, those are the cool guys. Those are those were, and this is even on the Columbia, right? Yeah. Talk about screwed up on the friggin' head. Right? <laughs> So, uh, so it's a mafia. I, I, I should. There were mafia people in the bar. Right. So, um, this was like so, so cool to me. You know, like I'm in, man. You know, <laughs> like, and uh, and uh, so a couple of weeks later, I got really drunk. It came in there, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and got fired. Mm -hmm. Thank God, man. Because again, it probably saved my life. You know, because what was next was, hey, man, we need you to go over and do something. Oh, you know. Right. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was really, it was, so I know it's a spectacular writer, Gay Talese a little bit. He's been very kind to me and uh, I met with him a few times and he did that book, Honor Thy Family. Yeah. So I was talking with uh, Gay about this and I told him the story and he goes, and he was he was embedded in that family for about five years writing that book. And, right? and, and uh, I said to Gay, uh, I thought they were really cool. And he looked at me and goes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, you know, so the Raging Bulls, that was the, that was the best. That was the really good man. Yeah, and you've been covering boxing for some time. From what I read is that you actually covered yeah, for the Wall Street Journal. Mike Tyson, yeah. 2001 probably, I guess, yeah. Oh, you've been covering Mike Tyson? Yeah, I know Mike. Mike oh, you endorsed my book. Wow. You look at the back of the book, you see it. Uh-huh. Wow, what's your relationship been like with him? Well, uh, I was writing it for the New York Times Magazine at first, and uh, I went out to Hawaii when he was training for Lennox Lewis, and... Uh, we hit it off pretty well and uh, stayed friends. And I was at his wedding and wow. first party. And uh, we got, you know, so <laughs> I'm starting to sound like an old man. <laughs> you want to hear a story? Yes, yes absolutely. Yes. Okay, so Mike, so so Mike invites me, my, my wife and I do his, his wedding with Kiki. And um, I'm out there. And as soon as I see him, I go up and shake hands with him. You know, a big, big handshake and hug. Yeah. Knocks a tooth out of my mouth. Oh wow! I mean, at the very moment, yeah, you talk yeah. about electric energy. Uh huh. You know, it was like, you know, and it was like, got this big tooth to swell out, and I'm like, hey, Mike, just yeah, zing, you know. And he's talking. And he's talking. So one of the things I did as a boxing writer, why I think I'm an excellent boxing coach, I do think I'm really good at this, is because um, all the fighters I I, uh, I got to know, I would always ask, okay, tell me one move to pass on. You know, from like uh, whether it be Bernard Hopkins or, oh, wow. and, you know what I mean. So they all have one move that, like, okay, here it is. Mm -hmm. You know, 
So I've always been able to pick up some great stuff from just just that way because. Well, I'm, what, what did Mike teach you? Okay, so uh, Mike's Mike's we're supposed to be talking about my book. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, this is so interesting. This is not going to sell any books. This Come is, on. This is related to the existentialism. No, this will definitely oh, sell more books okay. than you Okay, think. so Mike's uh, specialty, which he really got from uh, Roberto Duran and through Customato, right hook to, uh, right hook to the uh, to the body, to the to the body, right? Mm -hmm. Then you come up the middle with the right uppercut. Oh, yeah. That's the knockout punch, right? That was his big one. Yeah. But the other one was hard jab to the solar plexus a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And you fit, and then because in order to throw a jab to the solar plexus, you got to bend low. Mm -hmm. So you got your legs under you. So you got and your weights back, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you poised to throw a big right hand, right? Yeah. So then you fake the left of the body, boom. Wow. And wow. throw the right because mm -hmm. when you throw the left of the body, the, the counter punch that is a counter right hand. Mm -hmm. So the guy should be walking into it as you throw it. And then it's Buenos Noches. Wow, that's really cool. Wow. That is super fucking cool. So what's that got to do with Kierkegaard? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Kierkegaard would have liked boxing. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> I'm sure Kierkegaard would have learned to or loved to learn how to box. Stories. I'm sorry, man. No, these are like really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't send them to my president at the college, will you? <laughs> okay, okay. So returning back to existentialist uh, philosophy, therapy. So in terms of kind of, um, I guess, existential dread in the case of death, how do you sort of, how do you talk about it? And how do you define, well, not necessarily how do you define death, but how do you sort of speak about, over, how do you speak about sort of overcoming death or the fear of death, if at all? You don't overcome it. That's something we got to walk through. It's a, yeah, I mean, even Jesus, even Jesus said, take this cup, man. You know, it's a, uh, it's there's no overcoming it like uh like uh you know I mean it's sort of able to die well they'll accept it uh, certainly but it's mm -hmm. it's it's not uh I don't think you overcome it everyone's afraid I've talked to very brave people about to die and uh yeah. they're scared they deal with this, the fear and uh you know so so the idea of getting over it there's no getting over it man yeah. oh, <laughs> did you ever read uh, uh Ernst Becker's Denial of Death? Yes, oh, Alan did. Alan yes. did. Uh -huh. He loves uh, that book. A, that's a deep book, man. Yeah, it's a deep book. You know, well, no, so I don't think it's a. It's it's been able to accept it. You know, to accept the fear, be graceful with it, mm -hmm. and let go. But it's scary. You know, it's scary. Yeah, and to be you know, get the present scary. with it. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. what do you what do you but, think? But, 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 but I think the lesson is though, at least I know if you don't believe in God or whatever. Yeah. Don't be careless with people, man. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Make amends. Don't let things hang. You know, don't don't have fights, stupid fights, and let them sit out there. Just, you know, make up. Yeah. And what do you think of Irv Yalom's idea where he says that although the reality of death destroys us, the idea of it can save us? Yeah, that's, I don't know about saving us, but yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he he confesses in uh, to having a kind of a morbid fear of death and, and aging. Yeah. You know, and in his other books, mm -hmm. you know. You know what's so interesting in existential in existential psychotherapy in the textbook. So what he talks about later on in life in the 2012 book, I think it's called Staring at the Sun. So all of these different sort of rationalizations or kind of um, 
I guess, sort of philosophical axioms. In the first book, in the existential psychotherapy book, he says, well, you know what, that these are actually like kind of rationalizations that don't ever actually eliminate the terror of death. But then you kind of fast forward to 2012 and he's like, oh, guys, in order to overcome the terror of death, these are the rationalizations that you should remind yourself of. So it's kind of interesting how that shift happened. And it was like existential psychotherapy was written in 1980 and then this book was written in 2012. Wow. Yeah, and again, he confesses to being really terrified of death early on. You know, so it's interesting here watching him wrestle with it. He's probably somebody who deals with the fear of death and et cetera by writing. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps that pen good and keeps going. Yeah, oh no, I mean, he's definitely been honest about that because for yeah. him, yeah, the books. Oh, definitely- did he? Yeah, I haven't yeah. read but I, I, I didn't. The Gift of Therapy, I looked at I, I wasn't able to get into that, but yeah. Love's Execution is the book I always use. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a classic. I think that in terms of like bestsellers, that's his number one book. I mean, for me, I loved it, but I don't think it's his best work. I think he has other works. No, but don't you think, but wouldn't you say that I would have patients or clients read that mm-hmm. because it does give you a sense of what unconscious motives. Yep. Uh, of what you're trying to do. I think it'd be a good book for clients to read. No, it definitely is. And it's easily digestible. And did you ever, yeah. read, did you ever read the follow-up to it, Mama and the Meaning of Life? No. Oh, that's a no. classic. I actually like that one much more. And so he that's has cool. this, it's called Mama and the Meaning of Life. It's the follow-up. The stories again? Yes, yeah, same thing. It's the, and it says on the, the follow-up to Love's Executioner. Oh, I got to get that. Wow. Yeah. That's, so there's a story. I'm not going to ruin it for you guys. There's a story yeah. about the cat. And so I tell this story to virtually all of my clients. And they're like blown away by it. It's Yalom's story. Huh. Yeah, it's like a fantastical oh, cat. Oh, thanks a lot. I didn't know about that. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it went into fiction with um, that one, Chopin, uh, Nature's Tears or something like that. Or? Oh, yeah. So And then he also wrote Schopenhauer's Cure, which is a brutal, That's right. Yeah. yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With Nietzsche Wept. That was another one. Oh, Nietzsche Wept, yeah. Yeah. So, no, uh, Yalom, and I mean, the last book he wrote was um, called Becoming Myself. So it was essentially kind of an autobiography. Oh, was that right? Yeah. So, I mean, he still right? writes. Yeah, and he still writes nonfiction. I think the Becoming Myself book is his last one. I don't think he's writing anymore. But even after he wrote When Nietzsche Wept, he still actually wrote, like, um, he still wrote nonfiction books in terms of, like, cases. So and sometimes he even mixes it. So sometimes he writes like cases, and then he'll write some fantastical case, like with the story of the cat. Mm. And it's really great because they have these deep existential lessons. Oh wow, that's coming. I'm gonna get it. Thanks for thanks yeah, for- most definitely. So yeah. and would you say out of all of the existentialists that Kierkegaard was the one who most influenced you? Oh yeah, yeah, by far, right? He's my man. He's a- <laughs> we're sticking together. And nature too. Nature's been a big influence, but not as much as not as much as yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't even think to ask this before. Uh, how did you discover Kierkegaard? Uh, I described in the book. Uh, I was going to uh, hospitalized, and after a breakup with my uh, split with my first wife, and uh, it's a basket case. You guys should read the book. <laughs> I you am got 100%. It. That's for sure. <laughs> I saw it on Amazon actually before. That's the yeah. yeah. Oh, did they sell it there? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I just happened to bump into him and uh, I actually shoplifted the book when I was a kid. So. Yeah, wow. I was, kid. I was a kid. I was like 23. <laughs> Don't tell the president. <laughs> and, and so what about some of your other works? Because it seems like they were a little more sort of academic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In order, to, in order uh-huh. to get tenure, you need to, you need to be able to write academic stuff too. Yeah, so what spurred this shift? How come you decided? Uh, what spurred this shift? How come you decided to write a book more? I know, I've always been writing uh, articles for news, New York Times, uh, Atlantic, uh, mm-hmm. written a lot of other articles too. Yeah. So I always feel it's really important for uh, uh, academics on, to, or at least for a lot of people in philosophy, to be able to reach a, an, an educated audience. 
And it seems to me that if you can't do that, you're, there's something missing. I'm not talking about just writing for people that don't read it all, but, you know, you should be able to say something to people that, uh, you know, are educated. You know, not to, you know so, so I try to write it on in a jargon-free way, which is uh, yeah. So yeah. Camus, one of, Camus on my writing uh, beacons. Ah. Yeah, like that. Yeah, so we had um, a philosopher, Jamie Lombardi, on the show a few weeks ago, and she's in lo- loves Camus. I've never met oh, a yeah, bigger, yeah, yeah, never, but, never met a bigger Camus fan. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's fantastic, it's beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and so, in the beginning of your book, you actually wrote that you were sort of afraid that even if, like, let's say, the knowledge that you pass on is second hand, second hand, that you still weren't saying anything that was probably or possibly saying something that wasn't of any importance. Do you still feel that way? Uh, say that again. I'm yeah. not sure. So, in the beginning of the book, you write that in, even if the, even though that some of the knowledge that you're conveying was secondhand, that you were still afraid that you weren't saying anything of any significance. And I want to know if you still felt that way after writing the book, after finishing it. I know. No, I, I feel. I, I feel there's, there's there's some wisdom in the book. I kicked my ass, but I feel there was some wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't. A, you know, it's funny because thanks for asking. Yeah, I was expecting to tell you the truth. I was expecting it to be a disaster. I was a. I've always been a sprinter writing. Yeah. So I wrote for all these Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times Magazine, mm-hmm. and when I was approached about doing the book, I was like, oh, "This is really, this is really cool, but I'm not going to be able to do it." Yeah. <laughs> what was the hardest part of writing it? <laughs> well, writing it longer at length. I hadn't done that before, so my son's a pretty well-established editor. Mm-hmm. So, like a year's gone by, and he's going, "Dad, you better sit down." I'm, you're gonna you lose your agent and everything. You're all you know. So my son Philip Marino has a lot to, had a lot to do with. Uh, and I used to coach him. I wrote about in defense of the fanatical sport parent. He was a mm-hmm. something I coached it was in the New York Times Magazine. And uh, mm-hmm. so it was a funny role reversal because I had I got to the point where it's like I'm not doing this. Yeah. And he's like, what? <laughs> so 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 in the end, I was I really do feel good about. It. I feel it was honest. Yeah. I, I don't feel like there was a lot of bullshit in there. You know, <laughs> that's what I was worried about. What kind of, yeah. You know, that's always the hardest part of writing. Just obviously, because I mean, you're writing to somebody, you're writing to a crowd. Yeah. And they're always going to be critics, no matter what. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, and with picking like, uh, I had certain personal stories in there that my son said. Yeah. Oh no. Mm-hmm. No, you know, like, you know, so picking but, the right stories out that had a bite to them. Yeah, but, but interestingly enough, I actually, at least from my writing, from my own, obviously, experience, that I think the vulnerability is what makes the writing significant to other people. So yeah. what I find is that for the most part, like the academic stuff that I write actually isn't read by that many people. And I don't really yeah. get that much feedback by it. But my personal stories, like mm-hmm. the one about like my experience in therapy, like those are the ones that get the most feedback. Yeah, where's that? I want to read that. Oh, my blog is called Leon's Existential Oh, Cafe. it's on there. Yeah. Oh, oh. What's this blog you're talking? About? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but it's on there. Okay, I got it. Man. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, obviously, Ben, this has been such a great conversation, and uh, just to uh, kind of wrap, guys, just to, just to kind of wrap up because we're already about to run out of time. Alan, do you have any final questions or thoughts for Gordon before we go? No, I mean, this was this was amazing. I love hearing some of the stories that you're are telling us. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. Well, we might edit those out. <laughs> like, I mm-hmm. hope not. No, no, they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> um, no, I really, no, you guys are really fun to talk to. Really good really good conversation. I really appreciate it. And, uh, no, we actually, definitely appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Yeah, stay in touch. And, uh, and th- thanks for the recommendations, too. Uh, Absolutely. And so do, you, do you have any final questions? Well, not questions. Do you have any final thoughts? Final questions. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> do you have any final questions? Do you have any final thoughts? Who's the last? Like, yeah, no, no, I do have a final question. <laughs> Who's the last person to steal home in the majors? <laughs> That's so good. Call me off guard with that. I don't know. Got me with a right hook. Who was Google and said, "Get out, man." <laughs> so, do you have any final thoughts for our audience before we go? Not final thoughts. Yes. <laughs> 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 no, 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 like a real, a real question. Um, if we wanted to, let's say, follow you online, uh, where, where could we uh, say we wanted to follow you online? Uh, where, I'm where on Twitter all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Tweet at a certain person, Tweety Bird. Yes. And what is your handle? Also, Twitter. Twitter. Uh, also, uh, if anybody, um, people can feel free to so can contact me on Twitter. But also, I'm on G. I'm on uh, email all the time. And let me give you my uh, email address to anybody who might have a question. Shoot. Yeah. Marino at Stoloff.edu. Right. So happy to answer questions and discuss stuff with people. And, you know, and, um, and, so, you, can, and they, you can find, and you can find Gordon, uh, Gordon Marino at Twitter. No, no. Oh, it's just uh, Gordon Marino. You yep. got my Twitter handle. You I do my... have your Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> that used to be the word for, C, for or CVs to us. Um, never mind. <laughs> but just, to handle CPs, CPs, CPs used to be big. But just see. to make sure, your, your email it's marino at saintolaf.edu, right? Yeah, but no dot. It's just stoloff.edu. Oh, okay. Same. Okay. Yep. Yes. All right, guys. <laughs> All right, Gordon. Thank you again so so much for coming on. And it was a pleasure. Yeah, have a good weekend, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. <laughs> Guys, thanks for watching. You can always follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on uh, Twitter. Twitter. Don't forget to click the uh, subscribe bell. button. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> Get notifications about the show. And thanks again.